This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. There are few mammals who are as outwardly tough and intimidating as Gulo Gulo, the wolverine. These solitary individuals are considered a species of special concern federally and threatened in some jurisdictions like Ontario. And they're notoriously difficult to monitor or track for scientific purposes. But modern technology is changing that. The combined use of digital photography and videography with unmanned aerial vehicles, or drones, is creating opportunities to track and hone in on the specific areas that wolverines may be using as a home base. With that knowledge, researchers and managers are able to create land-use recommendations that protect the much-needed space of wolverines and ultimately help individuals, as well as the entire species, thrive. A recent project undertaken by ecologist and wolverine researcher Nikki Heim, along with UAV professional Alex Taylor, utilized this method. A quick disclosure, the Fur Bears did provide partial funding for this project, and you can read more about our involvement at thefurbears.com. Nikki and Alex joined Defender Radio to explain how the convergence of their skills is offering new hope for protecting wolverines, the limits and importance of ethical use of UAVs, and what comes next in their project. All right, well, I think the, the, the logical place for us to start today is, is to um, ask the question of what was the, the concept behind this? Because we've got kind of two interesting things we're talking about. We're talking about wolverine ecology, and we're also talking about, uh, I don't want to use the, sur- the word surveillance, but I think it's the technical term, uh, the observation and attempting to locate... Uh, sites and things like that for the purposes of protection and management. Uh, so how does this start? Does this start as trying to identify the dense sites or does it start as we've got this tech? What are the ways we can apply it? I would say that it starts, well, for me anyways, it started more from the interest in finding dense sites and then realizing there's a technology that with um, more efficiency and, and less disturbance. So I think it started more at, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, not all the first questions are great questions. I'll own that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a bit about wolverines. Wolverines are one of these animals that I feel like a lot of us have heard of, obviously, thanks to uh, Mr. Jackman and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and various other publications. But the actual animal uh, is one that I don't think most Canadians will ever see outside of a confinement. Um, yet they are an elusive and important, I believe, mesopredator. Um, is, is that accurate? Yep. That's accurate. Yeah. Uh, very few people see them. Um, yes, particularly in the Southern parts of Canada, um, you, you know, you get a lot more people seeing them up in the Northwest territories and the Northern parts of Canada. Um, but yeah, I think for most of us that live in the South, uh, wolverines are mm-hmm. considered a very mysterious and elusive animal. Yeah, I, I remember reading articles about, you know, uh, uh, someone trying to just, they set out something like 20 camera traps and hoped to catch one somewhere in Alberta at one point. And it is astounding to me that we have wildlife in this country that w- w- with the technology we've had up until the last several years 
has been extraordinarily difficult to track. Uh, what is it about wolverines that makes them so elusive to humans compared to other animals who fill kind of similar roles in the ecosystem? Well, for, for one, they occur early low densities. So just, just as a byproduct of just there not being very many of them and only few per square per thousand square kilometers. So just, wow. you know, you don't see them very often. And then they are sensitive to humans. Um, they, they make a point in kind of staying away from us. So it's sort of twofold. There aren't very many. And then they, they spend time in places where we don't. Um, they spend a lot of time in high elevation mountainous areas and glaciers, and then just generally speaking, kind of avoid us. Um, so you can see one from a distance and they'll probably head the other direction. Um, so just their aversion to being around high densities of people and then their low density population is kind of a combination of those two. Sounds like they've kind of figured us out, humans. Um, <laughs> uh, are they specialists? Are they are they of a, a species that requires those very specific locations? My I, I, and I would look to a Canada lynx maybe as another specialist where they evolved in a very specific type of terrain and then their entire life cycle is around that kind of terrain. Is it similar for wolverines? No, not not so much. They would be more on the generalist scale of the spectrum. I would say. Oh. Um, they have specific habitat types that they're narrowed into, um, more that kind of northern, colder regions. Um, but they have a wide range of prey that they can feed on. Um, you know, a lot of people associate with them with being in high elevation mountainous areas, but, they, you know, they're found all the way to the coast. There's images of them feeding on salmon, um, so anything from caribou to salmon. Um, they're, they're largely a scavenger, so they can eat a lot of different a lot of different prey that's awesome they uh they they sound like incredible animals but they as you said they they don't seem to like people that much and i guess that's one of the reasons why you need to identify where they are and my understanding is the the intent of knowing where the den sites may be is less about just wanting to know but it, it actually has management implications for how we develop and how we plan uh in territories where they may be uh, what is the importance of identifying den sites? How, how does that play into all of it? Well, for a lot of species, those, those denning areas and where they have their young are kind of considered critical habitats. It's, it's really, if they don't have a protected safe space to have their young, then the population is really negatively impacted. Um, and for wolverines and other species that, so the other thing about a wolverine is that they have extremely large um, home ranges. They, they can travel great distances when they want to and spend a lot of time moving and traveling. Um, and so from a management perspective, when you're trying to narrow in on areas for conservation concern, it can be really difficult when they, they can move and utilize such a huge landscape. Um, so identifying some of those really critical sites for their reproductive success can be especially important when you're trying to look at a large area for management and say, okay, um, what areas do we really want to prioritize protection for this species? Um, and that can really, uh, really help with management directives um, when you can key in on those priority areas rather than saying this whole area, <laughs> you need to protect with all that. that it's a sense, harder, yeah. So, um, so, yeah. A absolutely. 
And I imagine you're also then dealing with uh, uh, getting away from the use of modeling data, which isn't always as reliable when we're looking at populations and, and distribution of wildlife. I know that was a big thing in BC. Again, uh, tangential and not the same, but uh, realizing with grizzly bear counts, this came out in an Auditor General report. So they were relying on modeling. And then at the local level, they were saying, well, I don't think that's right. And what the Auditor General report more or less pointed out is, yeah, we've got some modeling and some guesswork. And at the end of the day, we don't actually know. Uh, and I imagine that being able to do something like this then actually gives you a more realistic, a more accurate or, or even micro level look at a geographic range and whether or not there are wolverines or, or potentially other wildlife that are in need of protection under uh, uh, Coswick, I believe it is. Yeah, so we can identify kind of general habitat characteristics that you would feed into models to say, you know, these areas are potentially critical and potentially used for, for denning. Um, and so then you can produce those models from those habitat characteristics. And there's been more work um, in Europe and Scandinavia on locating den sites from telemetry work than, than have in Canada. Um, so that's where you can kind of start narrowing in on where you might find the dens. Um, but actually being able to find them and really narrowing in, like you said, on those micro sites is really important. Um, and I, I'm going to get right away to how we then do that, because I think this is a really cool combination of different types of knowledge and expertise. Do want to check, though, when you're doing this kind of work, you don't then go out and say, hey, everyone, this is where the Wolverine Den is. Uh, is that accurate yeah, to say? Yeah, that's, that's not something that we really want to share information on. Um, them being, again, really sensitive animals to human disturbance. And then these real critical sites where they're having their young, they're going to be particularly sensitive to, to human disturbance when they have their young, like most species are. Um, and so we, you know, we don't, we don't want people getting close to try and see the young or take photos. Um, so it's important for from a management perspective and to work with either local management or in this case local operators um, but yeah it's not something we want to broadcast to the, the greater yeah that's that's always a concern that we we hear about from folks uh is well as soon as you know where they are someone's going to go and try to kill them <laughs> um but i i think that is maybe a little less uh, that happens with a little less frequency than people may suspect in, in yeah and in some cases like, uh, they might want to trap but in other cases say in a national park or something like that the disturbance is actually more from you know the interest to seeing them or taking yeah. photos of them yeah and you would think folks would think okay well this is an animal that was the designation for an assassin regenerative man with giant adamantium claws <laughs> Maybe a selfie isn't a great idea, but I've also written the article, bear selfies are a bad idea. So I, I'm going to just assume maybe we need to remind folks that, yeah, if you see a wolverine in the wild, keep your distance. Uh, just just general advice. Now, so we, so we know general area. You, you've talked about how you can use modeling to sort of, all right, we know these kinds of characteristics on the land, possibly in the, the, uh, the ecosystem you're looking at, and you narrow it down to where you think they're going to be. How do you then proceed? How, how does uh, Alex and uh, the, the drone get involved in this part of it? Uh, Nikki and I met uh, years ago on a Wolverine study that um, 
was sort of the start of uh, Nikki's master's work as well, where we were um, uh, skiing around the backcountry, uh, setting up um, DNA bait sites for wolverines and um, kept in touch ever since. And we both worked uh, for Parks Canada uh, for a time. And uh, um, I'd started uh, flying drones and more recently started a drone services company. Um, and um, a researcher in the interior of BC, uh, I forget her last name. Awesome later. Yeah, um, had uh, initiated um, the idea of using drones to identify wolverine den sites. And uh, so we started to talk about um, <clears throat> the possibility of doing that sort of in the eastern uh, Rockies. And, um, and then started looking for opportunities because it starts out being literally a needle in a haystack. Uh, kind of situation. Uh, seeing wolverines is a, a rare event. Knowing where they are at any one time is definitely a needle in a haystack. And then another order of magnitude of scarcity is knowing where their den sites might be. So it all starts out with um, uh, reports of tracks. And um, the more tracks in the spring during the sort of the later denning period, uh, might be indica indicative of um, a den in the area. And so then one could just uh, travel around looking for the den site, but you risk disturbance. Um, you could fly around in a helicopter, but that's even more disturbance and, and cost prohibitive. Um, so using Doris's lead, we um, came up with a, a possible location um, just inside BC at, uh, in the Talus Lodge area and um, worked with the owners of the lodge, Sarah Renner and Thomas Grandy to um, see if we could do some testing of the technology and see if we can uh, follow the tracks from the air and possibly identify um, den sites. And, and it was successful on our, our first go. Yeah, that's very cool. And I was when I first heard about this, I was wondering, well, are you just going to look for wolverines? And I, I imagine, you know, they don't have mailboxes out, so you can be like, ah, there he is. So <laughs> what is it that you, I mean, as you said, it's a needle in a haystack. And if you're doing it during winter, uh, I, I mean, I just driving in winter makes me snow blind. So looking at a monitor, it must be, uh, you know, you, you must have stock in Advil, first of all. But then uh, what are you specifically looking for to identify them? And how do you make sure it's a wolverine and not a bear or, or um, you know, a, a really, really big raccoon? Right. Um, should I answer that, Nikki? Uh, sure, go ahead. Jump in. Jump in. Um, well, there's a lot of variables at play uh, to answer your question. Um, so the first thing is we're increasing the probability of uh, success by focusing on an area that has um, wolverine tracks in the snow to begin with. And then we're definitely trying not to disturb the wolverines because uh, the den, den sites in particular are um, susceptible to disturbance and there's the possibility that one disturbs the den the um, the mother might move the kits and that could result in a lower survivorship um, but uh, we're looking for tracks uh, usually in a ski touring mode so we'll, we'll ski mountaineering in the subalpine and the alpine 
Um, and we're not actually looking for, to see the animals themselves. We're using the drone to sort of, if we have an, a rough idea um, where the tracks are leading, we'll then use the drone to uh, do a systematic mapping mm-hmm. of uh, an area that might be, um, you know, a few hectares in size. And then we'll quickly look at those images and the processed map um, to focus in on where the den might be and um, even return to it a slightly later date to then hone in with with the drone. And so you're right there, uh, there's a lot of looking at white images, but there's also um, a lot of micro topography, trees, rocks, et cetera, that provides shading and, and contrast to pick up the tracks. But it is it is a challenge for sure. Yeah, that's very cool sounding. Uh, uh, Nikki, is there things that you look for or, or ways that you help uh, with your knowledge uh, of wolverines and the ecosystems to narrow that down or help with the processing of that? Um, yeah, well, I guess just to back up a little bit before we can get to the place mm-hmm. where we're finding tracks. Um, well, one of the part, one of the real benefits of what we're able to do this winter and um, and what uh, Doris, Doris Hosenleiter and also Andrea Cochello in BC have been doing is connecting with people that are out on the landscape more often. So you've got a lot of operators like Tell's Lodge operators where they're um, either heli lodges or ski lodges, or you can put out surveys to public to report tracks. Because we're not out there all the time, it's really, you know, when they can, they move across an area, you see the tracks and then the wind blows, tracks are gone. <laughs> so yep. it can be really challenging to kind of even get to that place. And so there's kind of a couple things even to get to the starting point where you want to fly the drone. Um, so first kind of working with, with operators like we were able to with Talos Lodge, they've been seeing wolverines and wolverine tracks up there for years, which was, and also in pairs, so more than one together. Um, and then looking at the habitat attributes around the lodge, there was a lot of things about that area that jumped out to me. Um, so, you know, the talus boulders, north facing slopes, um, high elevation, so it holds snow for longer into the spring. Um, it's a marmot colony, which is a great prey source for a female wolverine. Um, so those things kind of, before you go out to even start the searches, it, it's like that's a potentially a good area. And then you find out that there's wolverine tracks. Great. Okay, let's go. Let's go have a look. Um, so that's kind of what got us to that area as well, was the habitat attributes that we know are tend to be selected for by wolverines. And... Um, and then having the sightings and having those reports of the tracks um, really allows you to start honing in on some of those search areas. Yeah, it's a very full investigative workup that the two of you have to put into this. It's really, it is really cool to hear about because it's not just, all right, well, we'll throw the drone up in the air and, well, there's a Wolverine job done. <laughs> It really is gathering evidence from different sources and then compiling that with your modeling data and and just sort of consistently getting cl- you can't see it again problem with zoom these days I am making hand gestures that you're getting closer and closer and closer in uh, to where they might be then you send up the drone to really start pulling in the, the data from the ground from above um, and that sounds very cool I, and I guess you know you you had mentioned Alex and this is something I think is uh, very important to talk about. 
uh, and I'd like both of your perspectives on this, is the drone itself. As you, as you said, a helicopter makes a lot of disturbance. Anyone who's, uh, I, I have not been up in one, but as a journalist, I was around the orange helicopters here in Ontario, which are the emergency air ones. And I've been on the ground when they've landed in. You know there's a helicopter by the time it gets within about 50 yards of you. Uh, like it's extraordinarily loud. Everything's blowing around. There's people waving their arms around if you're in an urban area with pylons. I don't think... You would necessarily have that in a wildlife situation. Um, so it is very disturbing. But a drone, and I guess this is sort of a two-parter. Uh, one, when we're talking about a drone, what are we talking about? Because, you know, my first thought is the dinky things everyone got at Christmas five years ago from Radio Shack for 20 bucks. And then I think, oh, they wouldn't use that. And I go back to, you know, Obama firing drone strikes. <laughs> And I don't think it's going to be the same as that either. So where in the middle are we meeting on what these drones are? I guess let's, we'll go no, with that, that That's an excellent question because the, uh, the word drone, uh, as you say, does cover a, a very wide spectrum of, of possible uh, technology. And so it's actually a lot closer to the toy you got from Radio Shack five years ago. Uh, but the, the technology wow. has improved dramatically um, to be able to do a lot of things in small packages, I guess. Um, and for, for this particular uh, project, we use the Mavic 2 Pro, which is a relatively small drone, uh, weighs a couple of pounds, um, and easily fits in the backpack and with extra batteries and things. Um, and you can ski around with it in your, in your backpack and not be hauling too much of a load. Um, but it also is relatively quiet, which is important for that disturbance factor. Um, and once the drone is, uh, you know, 20, 30 meters away, um, the sound is minimal to non-existent. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it provides a, an excellent quality image, uh, and is relatively easy to fly. So all those all those uh, factors combine to make it a really useful tool. And, and what you're getting is a, um, a camera in the sky for that aerial perspective. That's what makes the difference. So you can do it without a, of an actual helicopter, which is uh, both very loud uh, and uh, expensive. Um, but there are also a lot of them in BC with heli skiing and, and other things like that. Um, and uh, the drone really uh, is a great tool for that kind of work. And, and when we talk about the disturbances too, that's, I mean, there is obviously going to be the ethical component of any work you do in this regard, but there is also legal components uh, in, in regards to using UAVs now. Uh, what are the considerations that you as a team have to work on and like sort of where are the regulations and then what are additional considerations you give this before yeah, just well, going in? I'll start with the it. regulatory side and Nikki can maybe jump in at the end. Um, but uh, first of all, yeah, I'm Transport Canada certified to the uh, advanced level. Um, I also am a, a flight reviewer, have hundreds of hours uh, experience. Um, so there, there are different levels of regulation. The Transport Canada uh, regulates drones as aircraft. So that's the uh, certification there. And then um, there's regional regulations. So whether you're flying on crown land, uh, provincial parks or national parks uh, or in municipalities, there are gonna be, or in proximity to uh, airports and heliports, there's gonna be regulations involved. And the certification process um, 
uh, in that process, you learn about how to um, fly legally and, and safely in those jurisdictions. Um, in this case, we were in BC Crown land, but the final level of consideration is the landowner. Um, and it's often one of the more important ones. Uh, so in this case, it wasn't a landowner, but it was um, uh, a leaseholder for a recreational lodge that we're flying in their territory. Mm -hmm. Legally, we wouldn't need their permission, but they were being um, extremely helpful and collaborative in uh, letting us stay at the lodge and also providing us information. Um, but beyond that sort of legal stuff, Nikki, did you want to comment on um, some of those considerations? Yeah, I think there's kind of a flight distance too that we're legally bound to, um, well, often in some areas, like how far you can fly the drone away from your standing, for example. Um, so that, that also, you want to consider access. So if we think we can, you're, you're doing the skiing. So um, if there's a basin or an area you want to fly, you're sort of, you're having, and where you think you can ski as far into, you want to give some of that consideration too. Um, in this case, like Alex mentioned, we were really fortunate to have incredible support from, from Talos Lodge. And um, we were able to fly kind of right from the areas that we, that we were hoping for. So um, logistically, it was good for this, for this situation. Um, you know, we were able to get in there and we didn't have to fly um, outside of that area that, you know, we probably shouldn't be flying. Um, and then from a wildlife point of view, we were able to stay at a height that kind of minimized the disturbance. We also were in a really good position where we have to get excellent weather. Um, I think which really helped too. It's, you know, it's all sometimes just, there's lots of balls <laughs> in the air and, you know, it's like, do you see the tracks? Is it yeah. snowing? Is it windy? Is it sunny? You know, um, and yeah, we were really fortunate this year. Everything sort of lined up for us and um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's great. Because it, uh, it's a relatively new um, investigative method. We're also sort of by trial and error um, building the methodology and seeing what works and what doesn't. So things like um, the light and the weather, as Nikki mentioned, really important to be able to distinguish, um, you know, the light gray impressions in the snow, you know, and everything else is white. That can sometimes be difficult. And um, if if it starts snowing or raining, then you can't fly too much. Or if the wind is too high, you can't fly. Uh, if the avalanche conditions are, mm -hmm. are risk is too high, you can't, um, you know, travel to uh, the area that you want to fly in. Uh, so things like that. But it's it very much a, a trial and error process where we're um, trying to build uh, best practices with this new technology. And that's very cool. And it's, I, I think it is, it's a kind of learn by doing scenario. Uh, and fortunately, the two of you seem like a very good team on something like that. Uh, and also just looking at the Raven West uh, website, which is uh, for listeners, Alex's uh, company, and you start looking at the services. And I was thinking about that and saying, well, you know, most of the folks I know who have done drone stuff, I was in media. So I know some folks who they train specifically to do that. 
uh, Spencer Campbell, who does a lot of our Wildlife Wednesday videos and helps me out behind the scenes for the fur bears. Uh, he's learning how to use drone stuff. He's a camera operator uh, and uh, film guy. And then looking at this and seeing, so you've got the environmental management and scientific research, is, which is what we're talking about. But then you also have stuff like uh, search and rescue, fire and emergency management, and other services. And you start to realize that the technology, this is the kind of stuff that if we had it 50 years ago, uh, you know, outcomes of major natural disasters and of other big ecological things could have been different because you can access quickly and rapidly and from, an, you know, different angles and stuff without putting people in the line uh, of fire, so to speak. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, because it's a, um, a new technology where you're getting a, a camera in the sky sort of relatively quickly and cheaply from a portable device. Um, it's really about bringing your own personal experience in or when people bring their own backgrounds and experience and um, expertise in that all these different new applications come about. Um, and the um, services we provide at Raven West are a direct result of my previous careers and experience and seeing where the tool can be used. Um, and the same with Nikki, you know, her um, field research has evolved through other experiences and, and uh, the drone has come to be one, a tool of, of many for her. Yeah. And, and I recommend anyone who's interested in this, Raven West does, uh, you do uh, certifications. You, as you mentioned, you're a flight reviewer qualified, but you've also got training on drone imaging, mapping software, applications for scientists, environmental land resource managers, gardens, programs, conservation authorities, industry, and more. So <laughs> it is very cool um, and, and certainly something to check out. And uh, again, I think it's one of those ones where we, we have to, and I am going to repeat, do not go out, get a drone and fly it over your local forest looking for wildlife. Um, probably not going to go well for anybody. Uh, so now that we've got this, you've gotten some looks at this, you figured out where a den site likely is as a result of using this combination of, of ecology and, uh, uh surveillance tools, what happens next, Nikki? Now that you've kind of, you've assembled a report that outlines what you found, uh, you'll be able to share the methodology, which I think is very cool, uh, as Alex pointed out. Um, and this could be a tool used elsewhere. So what happens now that you've identified that? Well, I think the, the first next be going back um, in the summer to, to con confirm the den site. Um, mm -hmm. And then... Again, the, the, the advantage of working directly with, with an operator in the area is that um, we can provide mitigation recommendations for this area and do some more monitoring. So um, I think our first next step is to work very closely with um, the owners of Talus Lodge who are totally on board, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's a fantastic partnership to have developed. And um, and we want to monitor to see if this Wolverine actually uses the site in in subsequent years. So if she comes back and uses the den again in a couple of years. Um, if she does, that would be great because we can really hone in on mitigations to protect that area. Um, so, so first next steps are kind of coming up with that mitigation plan and monitoring plan, working with the lodge. And that's exciting because if that Wolverine has already felt that that area is safe enough for her to have her crown, um, 
then hopefully she mm-hmm. keeps doing so and we can work with the lodge owners to keep it safe for her. I think it's very cool, and this is another great uh, application, is for folks like a lodge owner. It sounds like Talus Lodge, uh, which I believe it's a ski lodge of some sort um, in the high alpine Rocky Mountains, the meta-analysis of their website says. And um, I think that's, though, a very cool tool because if you are trying to be a responsible ecotourism operator to be able to bring in, say, for instance, your team, the two of you, or, or another combination of operator and researcher, and say, all right, this is my land. Where am I going to have the least impact by sending people on walking tours or on trails, or if I want to cut out a BMX track? Uh, because that's been one of the huge issues with planning, and we're seeing this a lot in Ontario and BC and Alberta and everywhere else, is, yeah, people want to get outside and use this natural space, but when people go into natural spaces it changes the ecosystem and it's hard to show that sometimes. Uh, so I imagine that again, this is a tool now in the belt moving forward for so many different people in so many different situations. That'll be really exciting in terms of management implications. Yeah. And I might just add to the management implications because we have, you know, you often focus on mitigation tools and management and, um, mm-hmm. but also the education. So there's this really great opportunity for, um, like you said, more of in an ecotourism lens that they can share this information and say, you know, we have wolverines up here. We even have a female that's having her young. Um, and so they, it can provide sort of that education and stewardship piece um, that, that sometimes can be more effective than um, management planning <laughs> really, at the end of the day. Yeah. So um, it's great. That this, these ideas that we're working on can be um, applied quite simply elsewhere. And, and there's a direct relationship between if a, a lodge operator or a, a heli ski operator knows that there's a wolverine den in this particular valley, then they can make the choice to avoid that and, and probably uh, contribute to the um, success of that individuals and those species. Um, and that's a very straightforward um, sort of detection to action uh, line uh, that doesn't need uh, yeah. government policy or uh, large campaigns or blockades. <laughs> uh. Yeah, well, that's that's a great point because it does take, without diving into politics too much, it can take an extraordinary, and, a, and as again, someone who covers these issues, a truly extraordinary community effort to protect some areas. And in this situation, to be able to then, as you said, show uh, rather than just say, say, oh, we think there's stuff here and we want to protect it, or there could be stuff here and we want to protect it, to be able to say, there's a wolverine here and they are protected under this legislation, so let's figure out how to do this together. Uh, And also, uh, to Nikki's point of the education aspect and reframing, that is really cool. I I was talking with Dr. Sarah Dubois uh, about wildlife feeding, and I'm not sure in which order these episodes will come out. So if that one's already out, go back and listen. If not, stay tuned. (laughs) And um, she was sharing with me about a situation where on a pier, people were feeding birds and they kept saying, please stop feeding the birds. It's not good for them. It causes problems, uh, on and on and on. And when they changed the language to feeding these birds is unhealthy and is considered animal cruelty, 
all of a sudden it was not an abstract idea of a thing you should or shouldn't do. It was a consequence to the action and people immediately can get on board with that because, oh, what I'm doing is actually causing harm. And there's evidence of this and I'm using language I'm familiar with. So it sounds like, and again, it's one of these being able to show the problem and identify very specific things can really build an argument out uh, or be used against us in the future too. Yeah. And I think too, to build off that a little bit is, is I think often we're saying, no, you can't do this. You can't go there. You, you know, and, and that, and it's difficult. That's people don't respond very well to that. So I think trying to yeah. encourage that coexistence idea that, okay, well, you can be out here in this landscape, but let's try and do this, this, and this, and then we can keep these wild species on the landscape while we also enjoy it too. And that's a really tricky balance to find, um, but mm -hmm. I think it's one that people can probably get more on board with, as if they can feel like they're part of the solution, you know, rather than the problem. 100%. And when you give people that uh, agency, very often you see them use it. Uh, it it's, it's as simple as putting a garbage can outside a convenience store where there's litter. It's, it's the same kind of thing. If you put a garbage can there, people are more likely to use it. If there isn't a garbage can, they just throw stuff on Well, at least in Hamilton. I don't know about the rest of the country, but just um, a, we, we do have garbage. Yeah, just an aside, um, one of the unique things about this site that um, Nikki and I have been working on is it's directly south of Assiniboine Provincial Park and uh, west of Banff National Park. And to the west of it, there's logging and other industrial uses. Um, so it's in this really interesting um, bit of habitat that has protection all around it and industrial extraction close to it. And the Wolverines have um, decided that this is a safe place for them, even though the location itself isn't protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting one. Uh, the Algonquin wolf, this, uh, this is just the one I'm most familiar with here in Ontario is a unique species that's been identified. Uh, it's about a hundred years old and it's a combination of, uh, I think I want to say gray wolves from Ontario and Western coyotes. And they're, they're, they are a distinct species now. And they have protections in Ontario around uh, Algonquin provincial park and a couple of other areas, but then there's these huge gaps and we know they travel back and forth between them. Uh, and again, another tech, another use of the technology to be able to say, no, look, literally, there goes one of the wolves from buffer, like past the buffer into the next one. So we need to protect this strip. Um, again, I think it just, it, it, it gives that scientific argument more merit with evidence, yeah. I guess. Without, without viable habitat, these species won't survive. It's that simple. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and to wrap up, speaking of solutions, folks who want to learn more about this or people who are coming up, uh, we have a lot of younger listeners who are in the sciences and academia who are interested in learning more about uh, both the work you're doing, Nikki on Wolverine specifically, and the two of you have put together in this report. And I think the combination, you know, I'll give both of you space on this one because you, you both come at it from different places. But, you know, as an ecologist, what can people do to sort of get to what you're doing and be supportive of it? Uh, and Alex, as a, uh, an operator and a pilot, what can people do to kind of get involved and support it? Oh, and Alex, you go first. I'm going to, okay. I'm just going to call it out. Cause you both looked at me at the same time and zoom. Yeah. Um, 
Can you can you state the question again, please? Yeah. What, what can people do? So folks who are coming up or people who have different interests who want to be involved in what you do or supportive of this type of work. Uh, and I think particularly in terms of the, the scientific applications, search and rescue applications, where's a good starting place for them to go to kind of learn more, get their feet wet and be supportive? Right. Well, it's always a, a hard thing to describe the, uh, the leap from starting to where we are now because it's uh, taken so many turns and uh, iterations and little failures and, and as well as successes. But in terms of um, drones, um, if you know somebody who flies, you know, ask them to show you uh, how it all works and, and get your hands on the controls. And, and um, what sold me uh, about eight years ago when I first saw a drone in use was the the imagery you know that uh, was so incredible that aerial perspective um, but because drones are, are regulated as aircraft there is consideration for um, getting properly trained and certified and taking it from there and really it's um, as important as the your experiences and skills outside the drone realm as to whether or not you're going to be um, helpful or successful in the drone world itself so just being able to fly a drone um, doesn't mean uh, you're going to have success. You have to combine it with other skills usually. Yeah, and that, and again, the Raven West website, I'll link to it, <clears throat> ravenwest.ca. Sure. Uh, you do offer a lot of those services. And I think it's even, if you just want to see cool pictures of drones in action, right? Check it out. Yeah. Uh, and glad Nick, to answer anybody's questions. Awesome. And Nikki, on your side, uh, you, I, I imagine you have a somewhat traditional academic sort of upbringing through this. No, I'm getting a big head shake. No, all right, let's hear the story. Were you in clown school at some point? Or... <laughs> oh, I think Alex is making fun. Uh, okay. <laughs> Mine is fairly traditional, maybe with a few bumps along the road. But um, no, I, I went and I, yeah, I took a technical diploma when I was mm -hmm. um, in my early 20s. And and uh, that gave me a lot of the field skills that really set me up quite well. And then, and then more traditionally went and got my bachelor's in natural resource science and then my master's in environmental studies, which is when I fo really focused in on, on Wolverines during that time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so I kind of came through that, I guess, in that traditional academic path, um, but also just kind of finding what, excites you um and i was able to find that along the way and i'm really grateful for that and the path wasn't really linear so to those people that want to get into this i mean i think what i did when i was in my technical diploma even was just volunteer for anything that i could kind of hear of and see mm -hmm. if that resonated with me um, and the wildlife studies really did and so i kept trying to pursue that line of work and it's led me in a lot of ways I couldn't imagine including this um, as well as even you know seeing a presentation with good friends and colleagues of you know collaborators like Doris and Andrea and the Cunies I, I saw what they were doing and I was like that's cool let's give it a try let's try this over here and um, working really closely with people is is huge um, you know, it, it takes a big effort, and and I think that's a really important piece too. Um, is to be open to working and collaborating with people. Um, 
as far as finding information and like how people might be able to, to help in different capacities, like I mentioned, um, a lot of the work that's being done right now is, is really driven by and, and supported by the sightings that come in. Um, so there's a lot of people out in the landscape these days, and it's really advantageous for us to have those sightings come in. Um, and there is a, a website, uh, it's called wolverinewatch.org, and it houses um, a lot of the work that's been done in the last decade. Um, so I would direct people to that website. It's, it's not a website that um, I'm driving, but it's one that a lot of the information that um, has come out of my work and many others is housed on that website. And it's also a website where you can report your sightings. So whether it be just sightings of tracks or sightings of individuals, um, people can go to that website and, and participate and support. Yeah, this this is. I just loaded the website. It's very cool. It's got this awesome. The the tracking system in here is very uh, thorough. Uh, under the Wolverine tracks, it's how do you know what the tracks you've seen are from a Wolverine? There's a video. There's photos comparing it to different animal tracks. That's very cool. Um, yeah. The research is all here on different subject matters, publications. Um, uh, the team. Oh, there we go. Um, and I so yeah, I, this is a cool website. So Miriam Barreto and Tony Clevenger. They they really got that started and. And, um, you know, we've all been working together for a lot of years, but that website has come a long way. She's done a great job. Also, the fact that under the team, Gulo Gulo has a little listing and it says very strong and great ultra distance runner, which is just very cute. That's Miriam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not me. <laughs> To read the preliminary report created by Nikki Heim and Alex Taylor, check the links in this week's show notes on your podcast app or visit DefenderRadio.com. You can learn more about Wolverine research in North America at WolverineWatch.org and more about Alex Taylor and the responsible use of UAVs via Raven West Limited at RavenWest.ca. I want to thank Nikki and Alex for sharing their time with me and all of you for listening. You can engage with the podcast. Have your questions asked and answered online or offline. Learn about contests and help me decide on upcoming episodes and guests by following at Howie Michael on Instagram and the Defender Radio podcast page on Facebook. The Fur Bears can also be found across social channels. Folks, we're wrapping up summer in the coming weeks. And as promised, the first episode of The Switch will be hitting your podcast feed soon. To get notified of new episodes of this new show, as well as Defender Radio, be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen and sign up for email alerts at thefurbears.com. I can't wait to share with you what we've been creating. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and The Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.